Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. We are continuing through the book of Revelation. And as we have through all our studies, but especially in the book of Revelation, we have the opportunity to bring in guests who specialize in this topic. Uh, So this is going to be a fun one. Rob, who do we have on the show today? Well, we were looking to get a hold of one of the greatest and finest biblical scholars that the book of Revelation has available. Unfortunately, he wasn't there. So we contacted Alan and he was, uh, sorry, I'll just get, uh, anyways, we are so pleased to have with us uh, Alan Bandy. Alan is the professor of New Testament and Greek at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. We won't hold that against him either. He's the Robert Hamlin Chair of New Testament Exposition. And he's formerly served as a Rowena R. Strickland Associate Professor of New Testament and Greek at Oklahoma Baptist University for 11 years. Alan is expertise in the New Testament with a specialization in the book, in the book of Revelation, of course. Uh, he has published extensively the, a book called The Prophetic Lawsuit in the Book of Revelation in, in the New Testament monograph series. And that's what we're going to talk to him largely about today. He's also co-authored books on understanding prophecy, a biblical theological rep- uh, approach, He's written numerous articles uh, and uh, published many scholarly works, and he's currently working on a lot of different things as well. So he has over 20 years experience in Christian ministry. Uh, he's been married to his high school sweetheart, Nicole, and together they have five children. So Alexandra, Josiah, Victoria, Mackenzie, and Titus. So Alan, uh, and by the way, if you haven't figured out, Alan's been a good friend of mine for the last 20 years, and we worked together on the committee for the Book of Revelation Study Group for the Evangelical Theological Society as well as recent publications. So it's uh, great to get together with him once a year, at least in November when I have our annual conferences. And I can honestly say that uh, not only is he a friend, but he's a good friend. And I appreciate your friendship, Alan. I appreciate you too, Rob, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Good, good. Welcome. So Alan, why don't we just start off a little bit? We kind of let those who come on the podcast for the book of Revelation, and I know you know Dana Harris, who's been on with us, and uh, and you know mm-hmm. Mark Wilson has been on with us, and, I, and, I, and you know David De Silva, who's been on with us as well just giving them an opportunity to just kind of give us a little bit of background about yourself and your journey and where you're at presently. And then after you're done with that, we'll ask you another question in terms of, you know, talk to us about like, what do you see as the major themes and thoughts and ideas about the book of Revelation? Yeah. As I went through college, majored in, in the Bible and went on to seminary And then while I was in seminary, I really knew that I wanted to go further in scholarship and and research and write. And then I went on to do my PhD, and I was always drawn to the book of Revelation. I think my background, I didn't become a Christian until I was 17. Prior to that, I was a punk rocker, into occult practices, uh, (laughs) uh, things like that. And, And I've always been drawn to the bit of the esoteric and mysterious uh, and I was a big sci-fi, still am, sci-fi mm. fantasy buff. And I feel like, you know, out of all the books of the Bible, Revelation, yes. you know, it doesn't get more strange and challenging than that book. So just through the process of of PhD studies, I, I wrote a seminar paper that uh, ended up being the the basis for what I was going to do my dissertation on. Right. Which is what we're here to talk to you about today. So thanks, Alan. All right, great. Mm-hmm. So Alan, kind of. In a nutshell, if you were to say, if I were to give one, two, three main things in terms of what the overall message of the book of Revelation is, this is where I would start, or this is what I would want people to know. What, what, what would you say to that? 
Yeah. You know, well, ultimately, I would argue that it, it's it's about Jesus Amen. and his victory and his coming kingdom and making all things right and new. So I, I kind of follow the, in biblical theological terms, the German uh, Enzeit, Oz, Erzeit, the end will be as the beginning. So I see mm-hmm. new creation and God undoing the effects of the accursed on humanity, death, all of the evil and wickedness that's rampant in our experiences. And so it ultimately is a revelation from him and about him. And and coupled with that as a message to the churches, real live churches in the first century Asia Minor, that it's not just some grand, bizarre, visionary escapade. It it's a it's a pastoral message as mm. as prophecy. It's given for the purpose of here's how you're to live, here's how you're to mm. respond. So it's a call to action Excellent. for the churches, right? And I think the key call is faithful endurance mm-hmm. and all the adversity and injustice and all the things that they might be facing and be exclusively faithful to Christ. So it is a warning against idolatry mm-hmm. and the other sociocultural types of things that might divide their allegiance and attention and, and devotion. So it's a call to exclusive faithfulness in Christ and worship of him only. And that patient endurance is a call to, look, no matter how bad things get, he will make it right in his time. And so it's a call to encouragement. And so within that, there's other calls for the believers. But but those are kind of like the nuggets that I, I typically land on when I'm trying to give some quick overview. It really sounds like it's emphasizing the prophetic element of the book, right? In the true sense of the Old Testament prophet and challenging the people of God to to live in a certain way and remain faithful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I I, I view the prophets more like CNN commentators rather uh-huh. than sitting with a crystal ball looking far off into the future. They're addressing the people in that situation then mm-hmm. and there. And really, the apocalyptic, visionary side of it is just a subgenre of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And so some of this will go into kind of how I think John views himself and why it's written the way it is. But ultimately, he is, as a prophet, giving a message to the, the, the churches, which is the message itself should have direct implications on how they live yes. here and now. Yes, yes, good. And let, well, let's hopefully uh, circle back to that by the time we're done. That's okay. excellent, Alan. Thank you very much. All right, so we want to start with, Alan, one of your major contributions to the book of Revelation, of course, has been your understanding of what's called the lawsuit motif theme. And I'm certain that most of our listeners probably have no idea what that means. So if, can you begin by like telling us what the lawsuit motif means and then why it's helpful for us to recognize this theme as we read the book of Revelation and kind of how, how it works and how it plays out. Okay. So let me let me kind of back it up to something I alluded to a minute ago, and that was how John can viewed himself. So John, he refers to it as a prophecy several yes. times. He writes in the same tradition, in the same stream 
as you find in the Old Testament prophets. Mm -hmm. Excellent, yeah. So John is writing and and presenting his message with the same authority, within the same tradition, using the same techniques that we find in all the prophetic writings. And that's why you see so many allusions to, say, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, these other writings, where it's not so much he is interpreting those books as much as he's drawing on that as part of his visionary presentation. Yes. Let me ask you a question about what, what you mean by, or can you give us some examples of that? Now, I know in the seven messages, Vinny and I talked about Tade Lege and how that is an introduction to a prophetic wor a word. Right, uh, right. Thus says the Lord or something of that nature. So what are some other examples of how John is using the techniques and approach of a prophet? Good, good question. So if you compare it to, say, some of the other, like even prophetic calls. So like in chapter one, the opening vision of Christ and John's commission to deliver to the churches the message that he has for them. It's very similar to the types of things you see in, in the call of Jeremiah, mm -hmm. where God calls Jeremiah, even gives him a vision mm -hmm. and, and commissions him to proclaim. Mm -hmm. You see it in Isaiah chapter six with the vision of God in the temple. And so even in the very beginning of the book, it sets the tone that is consistent mm -hmm. with other prophetic call narratives. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we haven't gotten yet, Alan, obviously in our study. To Revelation chapter 10, but Revelation chapter 10 mm -hmm. is clearly John yeah. being appointed as a prophet along the lines of Ezekiel. For those of you yeah. that are listening, Ezekiel 2, and then, 8, 2, 3, 3. Yeah, yeah, right. And coupled within that, you do find some self-references to the prophets mm. in which I would argue, and, and really David Owney in his commentary, he well, actually, uh, he has an article on John and the School of Prophets. Mm -hmm. And you see this reference to the prophets throughout. And some of those instances, he he groups himself within that. In mm. fact, you know, depending on who this John is, which I'm I'm comfortable saying I think he's consistent with with the the apostle, but he doesn't ever call himself that. Right. He doesn't ever allude to that. But he does present himself as a prophet mm. and one with prophetic authority. Right. And so he is addressing the churches of of asia minor as one speaking for god and it just happens to be through the vehicle of a more visionary you know as a seer rather than just as a thus saith the lord type prophet and so you think that then fits in with the lawsuit motif because the prophets like to use the law, 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 lawsuit which goes motif, back to the lawsuit motif. Okay, okay, exactly. Excellent. Thank you. So within the prophetic writings, and this has been back from the late 1800s, uh, Old Testament scholars started, you know, as they study the text and start to identify different forms and genres and different shapes of the way they present their message. One thing that's very common is what's been dubbed the Reeve pattern. It's spelled R-I-B, but that's mm -hmm. coming from the Hebrew word reeve, which means contention. But reeve is also the word that's used for kind of like legal mm -hmm. contentions. And so you see within the prophets, the common, I mean, they're, they're, they're all over the place, where they present their message as a lawsuit. Okay. They call forth witnesses, they render verdicts and sentences and warnings and repent or god will do this um and so many times what you find is god is 
through the prophets, delivering a message to his people. And it's tied into the covenant. Okay. Because All one right. of the things that you find within the ancient world is covenants were not just biblical. They were all over the place. And covenants served as the basis. When you violate the covenant stipulations, there's legal reasons to have consequences. And so if a covenant is broken, then the person who has broken the covenant, the person who is the other covenant member, has the right to essentially sue that person for violating their their legal pact. Mm. And so you find this language all throughout, and you can see examples of it. The one example I like to point to just as a is the way it practically worked out was Jacob and Laban. They had this agreement and to get his wives and to work for him and all this stuff. And then when he finally left, Laban pursues him. This is and where the word he in, has to work for seven years and he wanted the he wanted the yeah. uh, the, the and, younger and his wife and father. his wives and all his children, they okay. leave, they decide to go back to, to his parents' land. Laban pursues him. Well, in Hebrew, the word used there is he had a reeve. Mm. He had a contention. Mm. And and so when you read that narrative very carefully, you notice that he's actually bringing legal charges against Jacob. Mm. And Jacob is responding in kind. Mm. So this is something that is, you know, ubiquitous. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. And scholars have identified a number of passages that are deemed as lawsuit passages. And so... Where this connects with Revelation is, one, as a prophet, I think he is he is using common techniques, if you will, mm-hmm. for communicating issues of justice and righteousness. So he presents it in a kind of a cosmic lawsuit. And part of what there's a couple things that that gave rise to this for me. One was the number of places where legal language is used. You got witnesses, you got verdicts, you got all kinds of other things. And I began to notice, you know, even in commentaries, they would say, oh, this is this is law court imagery. This is law court imagery. And all I sought to do was just connect the dots and say, "Okay, is this a theme that runs throughout? And real quick, could we we pause real quick? Because I'm even hearing this. And I could imagine, listen, most of our listeners are going to be lay people. They're not, you know, seminary trained. They haven't really dug into this. And I see a huge obstacle in just uh, the equivocation of the term lawsuit, because in our modern time set, the lawsuit is this the civil thing that I do when my neighbor left his trash can and I backed into it or it's, it's something like that. How, how could we even just uh, strip away modern notions of lawsuit and legal things and say, what is the Old Testament or the ancient Near Eastern idea of a lawsuit and legal issues? Great. Good question. Well, think of it this way, right? Even the the legal code, the law like Leviticus and so forth, you have a series of laws. All of these laws are basically what governs just life. And the reason we have laws is because there's injustice. People mm-hmm. do what's wrong. They steal. They take somebody's wife. They, <laughs> they move the boundary lines of their property mm-hmm. to somebody else, you know, a little further over mm-hmm. and encroach mm-hmm. on somebody else's property. So much of the laws in the Old Testament are just geared toward how do you, when there's a problem, when there's a dispute, how do you come to resolution? Mm -hmm. And so we really do govern, not just in terms of laws of the land, but we really do govern our lives according to some sense of laws. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. what's right, what's wrong. And then the lawsuit becomes a means by which when there is an infraction, when somebody feels like they've been wronged, it becomes a means by which to hear evidence, to hear the witnesses, and to adjudicate. Solomon, and this was typically the role of the kings, right? Mm. Solomon, there was two two prostitutes, yeah. right? And one son dies, and the she takes the other woman's child. And they fight about it in the morning. They wake up, and she swaps babies, you know, live one for a dead one. And she's like, this is your son. She's like, no, my son's alive. Your son died. So they go before the king. And what does Solomon do? He hears the case. Mm -hmm. He listens to them. And in part of that trial, he says, okay, well, why don't we just split the baby in half and you each get part of it? And that wisdom then brought forth the true mother that said, no, let him live. She can have him. And Solomon said, well, you know know how it works, right? You know the story. Mm -hmm. And so... Whether we think of it, yeah, you're right. It's not the same in our modern sense, right? There's not billboards on the highway. Mm-hmm. Ambulance chaser type uh, things. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And in yeah. the ancient Near East world, you know, you have the code of Hammurabi and other mm-hmm. laws. Like all, all cultures adjusted live this way. Mm-hmm. There was always a set of here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And covenants were the primary vehicle to kind of establish those relationships of I will do this and you will do this. And if there's an infraction, then there's a means by which to make it right. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. I think of lawsuit, that's more of what I think of. I think of larger questions of justice mm-hmm. and making sure what is right is what happens. Yeah. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So let's actually start, Alan, with some examples of this from the Old Testament then, because it sounds like this Old Testament background is more is essential to understanding what the book of Revelation is doing. So, so do you have some examples where this is found in the prophets or something along those lines? and kind of showing us how this might work and how this helps us illuminate the text itself. And then we can dive into the book of Revelation. Okay. Well, I mean, there's numerous examples, but I'll just give you kind of a short, concise one. Okay. And it's Micah 6, 1 through 8. And it says, mm-hmm. now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and you enduring foundations of mm-hmm. the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. Now, real quick, and I'll keep reading in a moment. The appeal to the mountains and the heavens and the earth, these are like stable, enduring testaments, right? So the appeal always goes back to these things that are constant. Mm -hmm. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. This is the Lord. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron ahead of you, my people. Remember what King 
Balak of Moab proposed and and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Verse 6, what shall I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings and year-old calves? What would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 steams of oil or streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn? Verse 8, mankind, he has told you, each of you, what is good and what what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, mm-hmm. to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with the Lord. So as a lawsuit speech, right, God is presenting his case against Israel. He has a grievance. They have gone astray. They have broken covenant. And mm-hmm. so he is calling them out. He's reminding them of his faithfulness and his deeds to them, his promises, so what is it that he has done that has caused them to do this? Excellent. Excellent. That's amazing too, because even Micah 6.8 is going to be one of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like John 3.16 level, but that's that's going to be it's a right more there, popular right? yeah, verse. Yeah. Uh, but, and it's oftentimes quoted as like a good mission statement or like this right. thing we ought to strive for. But in the context of lawsuit motif, this is like, no, this we actually need to take this like super seriously in yeah. terms of gleaning the heart of God and what it means to love neighbor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that call to act justly, mm-hmm. right? It is a call. So the word righteous and justice are synonymous, mm-hmm. right? right? In the Old Testament, especially, yeah. And we yeah. always think of righteousness in this moral righteousness yep. of doing good deeds and telling the truth and whatnot, which is part of it, of course. But but at the, the center is what is just. And and he's calling them to live according to justice. Mm-hmm. And when you read the prophets, they're constantly saying, you're supposed to look after the widows and the orphans, not take advantage of them. There's bloodshed in the streets. What are you doing to make this right? Mm-hmm. The poor are crying out under a strain. Do what is just and make sure they get what is right for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So you see this message that runs all throughout the prophets, which I also see evident all throughout the book of Revelation. Right, right. And let's turn there in a second. Let me ask you a one-off question, if you don't mind. When you refer to mountains in verse 2, Micah 6, verse 2 now, and I know neither one of us are Old Testament uh, scholars here, mountains are often synonymous with kingdoms, especially in apocalyptic literature and even in prophetic literature. Do you see that insinuation there in the background here? Also, plead your case before the mountains? before the kings and the kingdoms and it's it's possible okay all right it's possible in the sense that god's people were to be his witnesses to the nations they were to represent who he is and his ways to the the pagan unbelieving nations and yet they failed to do so by adopting their ways instead exactly and and that's what i'm thinking exactly and and it very well could be that therein i would probably say genre is going to be my main key If it was a visionary type message, like what you'd find in Ezekiel or Daniel, I would say, yeah, that it could represent mm. something other than what it says. Oh, interesting. But, I, I would use yeah. prophetic genre more liberally when it comes to things like that. 
I think the prophetic genre, that's okay. Well, no, no. I mean, because yeah. clearly it's all kind of metaphorical and figurative. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. It, that's why I say it's it's not a stretch to say that it could be nation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Very good. But okay. I, I just don't think in that particular text it's evoking the idea of nations. Okay. So let's tie this now into the book of Revelation. So how does this play out in the overall scheme of the book of Revelation and various passages, wherever you want to take us? Great. Well, I can I can tease out where I see it, but okay. but before I kind of think one of the things that's that drove a lot of my own work on it was trying to figure out what the situation for the believers in Asia Minor mm. at the time of Revelation's composition. What what's happening there? So I did a lot of research on Roman jurisprudence, how they conducted law. Mm. Okay. And and even with the question of persecution and whatnot, you know, because it's generally like the older view was, well, there's clearly major persecution of the church, and that's why it's writing it. There was persecution, but not all persecution is in the sense of mob violence. Mm-hmm. And while we think the Roman world was kind of the Wild West, they actually were very, like, had laws, mm-hmm. a very orderly society. Mm-hmm. And so... Part of the order of society was appeasing all the gods and goddesses because mm-hmm. every aspect of life was religious. Right. And and if you upset the gods, it could mean a breakdown in society. Right. Right. Um, you see this in Acts with Paul. There's several times where mm-hmm. it's called the whole city in an uproar. Right. Well, no, it, <laughs> it's because the silversmiths were losing money. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think what in the backdrop, what I think's happening is Christians had no legal rights as a group. Mm-hmm. Under Caesar Augustus, actually going back to Julius Caesar, uh, they recognized the Jewish people as an ancient ancestral religion, and they were they were able to legally worship and practice their religion without having to accommodate to the the other gods. Christians didn't have that. So I think there's twofold. I think that there's a more of a split between the synagogue and the believers Mm. in which I think early Christians were operating under where most people just saw them as a sect of Judaism. And, And so I think some of the antagonism from the the Jewish community was, no, they're not us. Mm-hmm. They're something else. In other words, it's so in the letter to Smyrna, and he says, I know the slander of those who call themselves Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that word slander is blasphemeo, where we get our word blasphemy, but once again, just doing the language research, that was that was the typical term for somebody who was bringing an accusation mm. in a court of law against somebody else. Okay. So slander, I don't think was mocking and making fun of and name calling. Slander, I think, was denunciation. Mm. So in the Roman law court, if you had a grievance against somebody. Um, You took them to the local magistrate, usually the proconsul, but there could be others, and you denounce them. 
Hmm. That's that's the word from the Latin. The Greek would be blasphemy, right? The slander. You're bringing an accusation against them. So I think what the early Christians in Asia Minor were largely facing was twofold antagonism. One, their lack of participation in not just the imperial cult, but the local trade guilds Mm -hmm. and the worship of those patron deities over those guilds as well as from the Jewish community that was trying to distance themselves and single them out and say, no, no, there's something else and they don't, they shouldn't exist and getting them in trouble. Hmm. And so Christians were feeling, I think the weight of injustice that they had no legal standing, but they were doing what they believed was right and worshiping Christ and Christ alone. Hey, I'm so, curious, uh, real yeah. quick, when it comes when it comes to the concept of blaspheme, because oftentimes, you know, if you read is it D. A. Carson's book on uh, exegetical fallacies, and they'll talk about like root word fallacies right, and that right. sort of thing, would it be appropriate to still say that? Because we always use blasphemy in in a theological context now, right? right, it, right we would right. never apply it to something civic, you know, especially in America, because there's such a separation between church and state. When when we're looking at this, would we say, even though someone might bring a fellow citizen to the law court because of something that might be happening with one of the trade guilds, it's still blasphemy in the sense because uh, person A could be accused of doing something that is upsetting commerce and it's because maybe they didn't appease the gods in, in some, other, some kind of way. So there's still that theological connection. Is that why, is that kind of where that, that word is? It, it could uh, be. Used? So based on my research in early Christianity and persecution, they were often persecuted and executed as seen as a threat to the well-ordered nature of society, ideally, mainly in the sense of atheism, not worshiping Mm -hmm. the gods, not giving proper tribute, that by refusing to do that, even if they didn't commit a crime, in Roman law, that was a crime. Mm. Right. Not giving civic honor. It was, it was treason, right? It was mm-hmm. treason. Yeah. Yeah. Treason. yeah. Yeah. Because every aspect of their life was governed by religion. By the gods. Yeah. Yeah. And so anybody who was a threat to the well ordering, right? Their crops could fail. There could be economic disasters if the gods get angry. Because when you read mythology, these gods got angry and did all kinds of crazy stuff. And so appeasing them and doing what is right. So they're seen as a threat to society Mm. just by virtue of their faith Mm -hmm. and lack of faith in the gods of the day. But by what they do and by what they don't do, right? Yeah. 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 But the fact that they're worshiping another god and that by the fact that they're not worshiping the gods of Rome. Yeah. Right. And the Jews and what you're saying, again, just to reiterate, and we've discussed this a few times on on previous podcasts, Mm. is the Jews were protected from that by Roman law. But as long as the Christians remained under the umbrella of Judaism, it's okay. But we know that at least in Smyrna and Philadelphia, if not more so in other churches, the synagogues were saying, no, 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 they are pointing the fingers at them. Right. Those aren't true Jews. And now those Christians in particular, if not others are being hung out to dry in a legal context. Yeah. Okay. So Excellent. good good example would be in the book of Acts mm-hmm. when Paul's in Corinth. Yeah, okay. He has a dispute with some of the synagogue leaders and they take him before Gallio, the Roman right. proconsul, 
and say, yes. he's advocating things that are contrary to our law. Right. And Galio's like, I don't care. Right. Right. What do I care about your religious disputes? Get out of my courtroom. Right. And so you see an example of that happening, at least in the ministry of Paul, where the the means to stop it is legal. I mean, same thing with the crucifixion of Jesus. Why did they take Jesus to Pilate? Because they lacked the authority legally to have somebody uh, executed. So they could practice their law, but Rome still had overarching law. And so they had to take him to Pilate because only Pilate, right. as the, the prefect, working under the authority of the emperor, had the right to issue capital punishment. Right. Yeah, and you and see this in John's gospel most clearly. I'm sorry. In the situation with Gallio in, in Corinth, the judge sit, turns around and, and says, because the Jews are disputing with Paul, saying, hey, look, this is not a, not a good thing. Uh, and Gallio says, you know, in verse 14 of chapter 18, he says, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, would it be reasonable for me to put up with you? But if there are questions about words and names about your own law, look after it yourselves. So he's declaring Paul and the Christians being, it's it's a Jewish dispute and you, you guys take yeah. care of it. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah, that's right. So Yeah. yeah. So what you have in Christian history is the parting of the ways. Exactly. When did Christianity and Judaism split? Formal. And, yeah. you know, I think that split was happening in the first century, but it really comes to head early second century. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So what are some examples then in the book of Revelation where this theme really starts to show and, and to shine. Would you say that it begins, and I know we talked about this before, in chapter four, I know you think it highlights more significantly later, but in chapter four, it begins with the throne room scene. Is that the whole idea? Hey, God's the one on the throne? And is, is it a well, judgment that's exactly or right. else? Right. So against that backdrop, you have a system that doesn't afford you rights. Mm. You lack justice. And they're mm. at the mercy of earthly judges, ultimately under the Caesar, the emperor, who is pagan, unbelieving, idolatrous, mm. and it doesn't seem right. And so what you get in chapter four, you know, that throne room scene, mm -hmm. right? You have this, here is the God of the universe. Here's the creator the cosmos, and he is the true judge. Amen, yeah. So true to apocalyptic genre, the dualism that's inherent. What I mean by dualism is the there's above and below. Mm -hmm. And so the contrasting is the below is our current world, our situation, which is temporal. Um, it's our lived experience. Above is the heavenly. And in that, the above is the real reality. It's what's true, even if it's unseen. And so by that opening vision of God sitting on his throne as the sovereign of the cosmos, you have this introduction of here's the true judge. Here's the true emperor. So despite what's ever happening below, and despite the reality of the experiences that we have in the 
injustices and the hardships and the persecutions, there's a true judge who will render just verdicts and make it right. So yeah, I see it in chapter four. I see it in the letters. And we can come back to this later. Mm -hmm. But if you don't mind, I think the situation that kind of speaks to the believers and even the this whole theme is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. So this is the fifth seal. And it says in verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. Once again, testimony there mm-hmm. is legal terminology. And they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long Mm -hmm. until you judge those who live on the earth? And this is the CSB, and it says, avenge our blood. Mm -hmm. And they were given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number to be completed of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were going to be killed just as they had been. And it was G.B. Caird's commentary that really... Mm -hmm. Kind of sparked this to life for me because he argues that this isn't a call for personal vengeance but right. public justice right. these these people whoever they are probably future to john's time okay are killed for nothing less than being faithful to god and faithful to the testimony of christ mm-hmm. and so now they're going before the the judge of the universe, and they're pleading their case. I I refer to them as the star witnesses. Mm. And they're asking God, God, when will you make this right? Mm. When? And so the word there that's translated avenge, that's Mm -hmm. that's an okay translation. It causes a lot of problems among scholars. This seems to be contrary to turn the other cheek type ethic. But that's the thing. I don't think it's vengeance. I actually translate the word vindicate. Mm. When will you judge those who have judged us? Mm. When will you make this right? They haven't just judged them, by the way. They've they've judged them by killing them. Right. right? Yeah, because right. the souls are on the altars who have been slain, which implies right. by, by Rome. So in chapter 18, when the verdict against Babylon, right. I, yeah. Rome, is given, the charge is... For the blood of the saints was found in her. Yeah. So part of the reason why God judges the way that he does is, is because of how they treated his people. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, question, going back to just to define something in, in verse nine, mm-hmm. you had just read uh, that they were slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. And or I, I forget if your translation had testimony or witness. Um, but Testimony, witness, same word. Y- yeah, yeah. Reading this in a modern context, we're going to hear testimony and witness in the in the concept of this is the thing I I give my testimony to mm-hmm. someone at Starbucks or something like this. Um, help us understand what this means in a first century context in terms of lawsuit or legal. Excellent. I'm I'm glad you asked. So the Greek words underneath all that are martus, which is a witness, mm-hmm. martyria, which is testimony. That's what's used here, and then there's the verb form. Um, um, martureo, which is to testify. And so I mentioned that because that's where we get our word martyr from. Mm-hmm. A martyr is somebody who 
because of their faith were killed. And so one, I, I actually spent months when I was writing my dissertation on this fascinating word study. So when we read the mart or witness, you know, it's often become martological. We think, oh, well, they they gave their lives for faith. That's anachronistic to the writing of Revelation. The word itself has its root in the law court. And so it means somebody who bears witness, like we even have today, a witness in a trial. Somebody who's testifying to what they have seen, what they know. So the testimony there is not so much of they shared the gospel with their you know, neighbor at Starbucks and therefore they're persecuted, as much as they're testifying to the truth. They're testifying to the word of God. They're testifying to Christ. They're testifying experientially with what they know. And because of that testimony they were deemed guilty and executed. Even just from a applicational, you know, to, to be blessed because we're hearing and doing the things of this letter. Right. It, like we, especially in this global world where we know of everything that's happening, I could read of our brother pastors in China who are literally being yeah. hauled off to prison or brothers in Africa or, or places like that who are being beheaded, like literal, uh, you know, martyrdom and persecution. In the American church, where oftentimes we run, we have a martyr complex, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but we don't want to also minimize that, you know, we, we do live in a world hospital of God. We're living in the present evil age. Uh, what might this look like? What might, you know, are there anecdotal experiences that we could say, okay, it's, it's kind of like this in maybe the Western world where we just don't come up a, a, against as much uh, persecution. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. The types of things in our, in our North American context that, we cry, we cry we're being persecuted and our rights are being trampled, you know, for various almost piddly things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do have that martyr complex, partly because in our context, Christianity has been such a dominant part of our culture mm -hmm. that that we're a majority rather than a minority. Now, I think mm -hmm. in reality, we're more yes, of a minority, right? Yeah. Um, the thing that I've, I've, I've kind of struggled with pastorally, as well as just thinking through things is, you know, when you read the new Testament was, you know, written in a time when they had no law, no justice, they served under, you know, cruel emperors, megalomaniacs. Mm -hmm. And yet Peter writes, obey the emperor, mm -hmm. keep the laws, do what is right. Paul makes the same case, right? Obey your earthly authorities. And so what fascinates me about that is the fact that he's not telling them to obey the good authorities, but keep the laws, live a good life. Don't do anything knowingly illegal, right? Let your light so shine. So they were called to a life in which they were to give evidence of who Christ is by the way they acted and interacted with one another and their faithfulness and their compassion and kindness, not their ability to protest and shout the loudest mm -hmm. against the travesties that they're facing. And I think about that in our context because 
It's the exact opposite. We have a government that allows us to have a voice in things. But sometimes I think in doing so, we lose the connection of what it means to live a Christ-like life in our communities and show Jesus, not just with what we say, right, but right. how mm-hmm. we act and interact with each other and other people. Mm. Yeah, with love. Because I think what we see in in a lot of in the Western context so much is that it's telling them where they're wrong, and that's how I'm a witness, and telling right. them and telling them mm-hmm. that they're wrong, and, right. and God's going to judge them, and they're going yeah, to hell. and condemning them uh, because yeah. they are wrong, and and not coming alongside them and caring for them with compassion and justice and mercy and grace. Have you read, by the way, the the, the book Patient Ferment? No, the, I haven't. I think it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Uh, Vinny, you've read it. No, no. Oh, oh you have, we've talked about it before. I'm, I'm pretty sure we have. Yeah. It's a phenomenal work. And Alan, you'll love it because it's extremely well written from a historian's perspective. It looks at this, I believe it looks at the second and third century with original sources, all the footnotes, are original sources. And his question is, how did this Christianity even survive, let alone thrive, hmm. when they're preaching about a Jewish Messiah in Jerusalem who was crucified by the Romans? I mean, that's not going to appeal to the Jews. It's not going to appeal to the Romans. Who's this going to appeal to? I mean, how do they survive? They weren't about getting money. They weren't about getting immorality. And his answer is because they practice the Christian virtue of patience. Mm-hmm. And what he argues is, is, he says, these sources tell us that they knew you Christians went into that home on Wednesday morning for some kind of study or whatever it was. And then we saw you guys out in the marketplace later on that afternoon, or we saw you in the workplace and you're all different. Mm-hmm. What are you guys doing in that house at 5 a.m. on a Wednesday morning? That makes Mm. you so different. That makes you love that widow. Take care of that orphan. Take care of that woman. Take care of that that person in need. And the author's argument is that Christians grew because they were people were attracted to them because they practiced the Christian virtue of patience, which he describes as this love and surrender and sacrificial love for the sake of the other. It's it's a that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's like it makes sense because until. Right. You get power. How do you how do you even survive? So, yeah. Well, so let me let me give you an example that I'm I'm familiar with. So so one of my heart passions is uh, work with the refugees. Mm. Um, And in 2020, the year covid broke out, I was actually on a a, a refugee camp in in Greece on on the island of Lesvos at Moria. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, 10,000 refugees. Mm many from Afghanistan, Iran, mm. Syria, and then even from African countries. So it's it's kind of the gateway into the European Union, right? So you got to go to yeah. these camps and then you get processed and maybe you can get approved. And they flee and you hear these heartbreaking stories. I mm. still follow the reports um pretty much on a on a on a weekly basis there are still refugees showing up and they travel overland, they go through Turkey, they pay everything they have to human smugglers to put them on a boat, and many of them end up drowning. It's it's awful, okay? Mm-hmm. And then post that, I've I've been once again to a number of countries where there's refugees there, a lot of a lot of these refugees. And here's the thing: refugees are displaced people. They don't yes. leave their countries because everything's rosy. Yeah, exactly. Because they want they're to, seeking right. a better life for their family. Many of them under threat of death right Mm -hmm. okay and then they're crowded into basically a very large outdoor prison right and it's i still 
think about this, the conditions there. And that camp actually burned down mm. a year later. Mm. And they relocated it to another part of the island that used to be uh, where the military tested bombs. So it's radioactive ground. I mean, so you're talking about people who are displaced and nobody wants them. Mm. They're treated as less than people. They're viewed as a scourge. And it, on and on it goes, right? The truth of the matter is many, many of these refugees are becoming believers. Mm. And the mm. reason is because everybody hates them. Nobody wants them. And the only people showing them kindness are Christians. Amen. Mm. Uh, awesome. That's, that's phenomenal. Excellent. And I've heard testimony after testimony how Christians just showed them love, welcomed yeah. them, fed them, didn't treat them like animals. And that was a testimony to the gospel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we think so much of our witness is a matter of the words we say. Right, right. But it's words coupled with Christ-like actions and not flipping over the tables. But I'm right. talking, you yeah. know, <laughs> the, the lepers, the widows, the, <laughs> yeah. the least of these. Well, that, that's a mic drop right there, Vinny. We're done. We're good, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. See you next week. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. So, Alan, um, one of the things I do, uh, and I haven't shared this with you before, but when I start a study of the book of Revelation, whether it's a class or or whatever, is I love going to Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. And in both the two Psalms, they begin with, and I think Vinny and I have done this already a couple of times, so the listeners might be hearing this for the second or third time. They start with sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. And the whole psalm, verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It's this celebration, and they're singing Lord glory. And then at the end, you're like, well, why are they so happy? Why are they ascribing glory to the Lord? And verse 13 says, because the Lord, before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming mm. to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And I think if you start realizing the fact that most of the people in the Roman world or most of the Israelites throughout their history, they were the oppressed. And what they longed for is the day when God brought justice, because yes. that became the day of their vindication. Yes. So would you put this lawsuit motif in the book of Revelation in that kind of a context also then? So these martyrs Absolutely. under the altar are crying out for justice, not for vengeance, but for ultimate justice and vindication for because justice. the oppressed are getting... Are, are yeah. getting vindicated. Yeah. And, and I think that's really the true call to the Christian virtue, yes. right? Yeah. I'm not to take vengeance against somebody who wronged me. I'm to entrust it to God and mm -hmm. let God deal with them. I'm to love them and be kind to them. Right. Pray for them. Right. And so that question, and the reason why I we've kind of gone off on this thinking, well, what does this have to do with Revelation? All of this has to do with Revelation. Yeah. yeah. Because this is the context that they're living in. They're appealing to God, and Christ comes as the deliverer. Well, within this, this is where I see it as a theme, a, a motif, that when you look at the judgments, even the, the series of sevens, mm -hmm. right, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, what you see is there's a—and it's it's apocryphal writing, but it's the, the wisdom of Solomon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it says that God judges them incrementally so that they would repent. Mm. And so what you find here are these incremental judgments. And in, in doing so, it's gathering evidence. 
And you have a couple of places where that evidence is on display that he brings judgment. And instead of repenting, they they curse him and blaspheme. They do not repent. They do not let go of their wickedness. So what you have is kind of this trial in which the evidence is being gathered through these series of of judgments, however we want to understand those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And that that the verdict then when it comes is he is just because he yeah. has done what is right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's not and capricious. He's not arbitrary. He's not just mm-hmm. pouring out wrath. Right. That it's yeah. there's there's actually there there's care that's brought yeah. into that. Yeah, and yeah. for the believers, then they're called to wait and be patient and be faithful and trust that God will bring it to right. right. And he does in the end. Revelation eleven eighteen, at the end of the seventh trumpet, he says he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. See, right. you guys have done this, and therefore, this is what's coming up, uh, upon you. A quick word of clarification there, and I'm, I, I know your pastoral heart, um, Alan, also— when you talk about suffering patiently uh, when someone has wronged you, we're not talking just to so the listeners are clear. We're not talking about the abused spouse who can't seek uh, no, help exactly. or, or we're not saying that you can't do those things. We're not saying it's wrong. It's, mm-hmm. We're not saying that it's absolutely wrong to take someone to court. We're, we're talking about for your Christian witness in that context there of suffering uh, passively. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't like the word passively there suffering patiently and loving for the sake of the other, knowing that God will bring you, will, will bring you justice in the end. Okay, right. So let me, the context I'm talking about is yeah. much more social in, yeah. the, in mm-hmm. the broader context right. in which there was no means that they had mm. for justice in their context. Mm-hmm. Right. They yeah. had no legal protections. They had no recourse. And therefore, it, it wasn't, well, just deal with it. It yeah. was yeah. be actively faithful to Christ right and follow him even though right now it seems like you're losing right yep. now it seems like there's no way out right so part of that and 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 this is one of the reasons why I think apocalyptic is so so helpful yeah because it's it's showing them the big picture yeah and and calling them to this active faithfulness with the reminders at every turn that he will be their shepherd he will wipe away their tears. Yeah. You know, they will never thirst again. The sun won't beat down on them again. Yeah. Right. Those who deal in human slavery, they're going to be judged. Yeah. All of these things will be turned right. And that's why you have at, in chapters 20, 21 and 22, this picture of the new Jerusalem and Edenic. Yeah. Like terms yeah, right yeah. the river yeah. of life the tree of life the fruit for the healing of the nations mm-hmm. he undoes all that sin and wickedness has done to this not just people but to the world excellent so let's let's take this home here now and you've already done that a little bit for us in a phenomenal way in terms of the application of this and how we take the message of revelation and apply it to our lives also but here's the thing I think that, and I want to throw this out to you, and that is, we're not in that same situation. No. We're not the oppressed, right? We're well-to-do. We're fairly, you know, we're not worried about our next meal. 
We're not worried about giving allegiance to Jesus and losing my job. For the most part, we're not worried about public shaming. We're not worried about imprisonment just because I preach Jesus somewhere. So, you know, and then there's another question to be asked, of course, is, are we the oppressors? But we won't even go down that track right now. Right now. So how do we take that message of Revelation then about hang in there because God's going to vindicate you. Hang in there because God's going to give you from the tree. You'll, you'll leave from the tree of life. If they kill you, don't worry about it. I was dead and I have the keys of, the, of death and Hades. I'm alive forevermore. How, how do we take that message then to those people and apply it to us in a 21st century Western church context? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have the best answers for that. What's interesting is I've taught Revelation and taught this in a lot of international contexts where there is suffering. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing how easy it is to teach Revelation in those contexts. Mm, mm. But when I teach it in an American church, I'm met with but the rapture and helicopters and yeah. microchips and chat GPT and yeah, yeah. all and of the these vaccine. things, right? And and I think one of the appeals in the North American, you know, Western context with one of the reasons why I think we see things like the the preacher rapture and all these other things, this escapism mm -hmm. is because yeah. we're not in a context that mm -hmm. is similar to the context that the original audience and mm -hmm. the purpose of why John was writing in the message there. And therefore it then becomes, well, I'm going to things should go my way. I can only speak to how it has helped me. Okay. When I'm going through tough times, I'm reminded of this is temporary. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm reminded that I I need to be faithful and trust him. So when I look at global events, when I look at local events, when I hear shootings and other things, right? It's awful. And I, and I think to myself, how long, O oh Lord, right. right? But until then, my calling is to be a faithful witness to Christ mm -hmm. and to keep on keeping on. My tendency and other people's tendencies is when we see things that are wrong and problematic, we want to fix it. We want to make it right. So we typically jump in there and we try to argue and we might be right in what we're arguing, but mm -hmm. sometimes in doing so, it's really just a matter of human effort. Yeah rather than trusting. So there is a balance there, right? I do think we should speak up for those who have no voices. Mm -hmm. I do think we should seek to right the wrongs that we see in our communities. I do think we have that privilege and that voice, but it's a question of how we go about doing that and how we live our lives. Even there, I'm, you know, knowing that you're in New Orleans and, right. and I, I've never visited New Orleans, but I was telling Rob Great beforehand, city, like, oh, I'm, I'm fascinated. It's on my bucket list. Uh, yeah, I've, yeah. I love everything I've studied about New Orleans. I'm a musician, too. So it's like the heart of the, the origins of jazz and everything come from there. Uh, but um, from what I've studied of New Orleans, I mean, it, it's similar to the Bay Area, which is where I'm at where you could have extremely wealthy areas, you could have just, you know, regular suburbs, and then you have these extreme impoverished areas, high crime rates, terrible school system, like all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, so like you have New Orleans, the parts of New Orleans that would be that to our Oakland, you know, um, mm -hmm. or, or Richmond or something like that. So even for you though, 
how do you, how would you go about and teach that message in an American context, but to those parts of your community that are they're struggling with everything from like extremely high poverty rate, tons of health issues, mm-hmm. crime, uh, you know, just off the charts. I mean, you, you're still preaching this from a social government corruption. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a very living reality. I mean, I, I jokingly but not jokingly say that we play a game at home with the kids was that gunshots or fireworks mm-hmm. yeah because it could legitimately be yep, yep. both mm-hmm. <laughs> um and that's it's not a daily basis but it's it's often enough um mm-hmm. i work at the seminary here i've there's been shootings literally in front of the seminary mm-hmm. um because the part of town we're in is is part of that you know that's not the old testament professor not getting along with the new testament professor <laughs> right <laughs> Right. Yeah. The theology um, and the hermeneutics departments having trouble. But I but I see it, I see it even on a national level and mm. how when it comes to election cycles and how we get so caught yeah. up mm-hmm. in this political rhetoric mm. and and how as Christians we we want a godly king. And that's what we push for. We have our, our platforms. And the problem is you know, a godly king is still going to be a fallen king. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and for me, I want to find my hope, not in any earthly institution, any earthly situation. I want what's right. I want justice. But at the same time, I also live with the reality that that's just, we live in a fallen, broken world. Mm-hmm. And I can either get angry about how fallen and broken it is, or, I can follow Christ's example and love my neighbor Mm -hmm. and share the love of Christ and help people walk through those difficult times. So, you know, the problem is difficult times are difficult times, right? The book of Revelation doesn't deal with everything, but what it does do is it frames the fact that Christians feeling the injustice, perhaps getting discouraged, perhaps wanting to compromise with the world around them, perhaps wondering, is following Christ worth it? They're reminded of a picture of the glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will answer their prayer, who will set things right, and God will hold accountable all the people who have done what is wicked. Mm -hmm. Right. And that hope is is so invigorating mm-hmm. you know because when i look around me i get discouraged very quickly but when i look up i'm reminded and i think that's what revelation does reminds us that this this around us is a shadow it's temporary it's not permanent mm-hmm. the day is coming mm-hmm. gosh that's so good man alan it's so exciting having you on today. This is fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I feel like I needed to talk about Revelation more, but maybe you have oh, me back good. and we can actually look at a text. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that again. Also, maybe we'll do Revelation seventeen and eighteen. And yeah. Yeah. Hey, is there any uh, anything that uh, we should plug for you? Do you have social media or any publications or anything out that uh, folks might want to check out? Yeah, great question. So I've kind of fallen off the social media wagon. I used to blog. I used to be mm-hmm. involved with things and. You know, every now and then I'm I'm invited to do podcasts. 
I currently, my most recent book is a book by Baker on the illustrated guide to the life and ministry of Paul. Mm-hmm. And it's written for just average Christians, right? It's not a highly academic work, even though it's, inc- you know, I spent a lot of time researching it. And then I have some other smaller things coming out, but that's probably the one that I would just, if I could put anything in someone's hands, sure. it's not Revelation. I kind of, took a detour away from Revelation, you know, decided to look at the rest of the New Testament. There is but... <laughs> something else besides? Oh, all right. But uh, that book has uh, been well-received. Oh. I, I get emails on a regular basis, so I'd probably promote that. Oh, nice. all right, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks uh, Thanks for hanging out. I uh, I appreciate you more, the fact that you've known Rob 20 years and you still associate with him. So oh, yeah. Rob's that's Rob's something about patience friend. right there. Right? Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> hey, I love you know. having a good uh, dialogue partner. We I think we sharpen each other. He's helped my thinking on some things. Mm-hmm. And um, I just... Probably I just, not sports related because he's tainted well, very, very much there. Yeah, well, I, I could care less about sports, so that's never an issue. <laughs> But we had him on anyway. No, no, it's been good. I'm yeah. I'm honored to be a part of this and right. would love to, you know, see how God just blesses and uses this this ministry you have. Right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey, oh. I'll see you in San Antonio in a few months and we'll get some pizza. Yes, for sure. With with Jace. With Jace. Yeah. yeah we'll, right. we'll let him pay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> nice thanks alan and i hope everyone appreciates this share this episode this is a really good one uh share all the episodes but hope everyone's enjoying this and we will catch you guys next week i want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others please follow this podcast and give a review on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people